Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Trying out that cold open because I got some good feedback. Today's episode is brought to you by Good Ranchers. Get some better than organic chicken and craft beef shipped right to your front door by going to goodranchers.com slash alley. Okay, guys, today we are talking to Daily Wire reporter Megan Basham. We are talking about this bombshell article that came out last week, I believe, about evangelicalism and the evangelicals that were basically used by the former NIH director, the retiring NIH director, Francis Collins, to put to push vaccines and masks and a virtual meeting during the height of COVID. It is a very fascinating article, and I just want to talk to her about how she got this information about some of the top and most influential evangelical leaders and why they are so influenced by Francis Collins. We're going to talk a little bit about who Francis Collins is and why it's really puzzling that some of the most respectable Christian leaders like Tim Keller are praising him publicly and are basically using him as a vessel or using themselves as a vessel to preach whatever Francis Francis Collins wants them to preach to their congregants. We're also going to talk about this New York Times opinion piece by uh, David Brooks, the dissenters trying to save evangelicalism from itself, talking about how basically conservative evangelicals are a huge problem. Surprise, surprise, and even mentions World Magazine. Uh, I am an opinion writer for World Magazine, so I took a special interest in this story. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit more. It's a really fascinating conversation. Uh, You guys might know, over the past 24 hours, I traveled to Tallahassee. I got to speak to a group there at at, uh, Florida State University. I'm very thankful for the opportunity um, to do that. And I got to meet a few of you there, several of you there. Thank you all. To those of you who came out also over the weekend, I got to meet so many relatable listeners. I went to a Nate Bergazzi show. I don't know if you guys know who Nate Bergazzi is. He's a very popular comedian. If you guys have Netflix, definitely go watch his specials. He's totally clean. Like he doesn't cuss. It's not raunchy. He's not necessarily like an explicitly Christian comedian. He's just a clean comedian, super dry, super sarcastic hilarious. And my husband and I got to go to that show over the weekend. And there was a huge crossover between Nate Bergazzi fans and relatable listeners outside of a conference that I've actually that I'm actually the speaker for. I don't think I've ever met that many relatable listeners in one place. Like I could not even walk a few feet without one of you coming up to me and saying, oh my gosh, I listen to relatable. So thank you for those of you who did come up to me. I also got a couple messages from you saying that you were, you didn't know if you could, you know, should come up to me and take a picture or whatever. And also I noticed that a lot of you who took a picture with me you're like embarrassed to ask or you don't know if you should ask. Just ask to take uh, take the picture. It's not embarrassing at all. It's not weird. I love to meet listeners of Relatable. I love to take a picture with you and talk to you. Um, So thank you so much to everyone who came up to me. I love getting to meet you guys. It's just a great reminder, even though every day I love doing what I do. It's a great reminder when I meet you guys and when I hear firsthand, face-to-face, what this show 
really means to you and the impact that it's had by the grace of God on your life, it just, it keeps me going. It gives me the energy to talk about these things day after day. So thank you guys so much for your encouragement. It's super fun to meet you guys. Another thing that I wanted to say that happened over the weekend that I wanted to use just as encouragement to you guys, and I talked about this also in my speech in Tallahassee, but Over the weekend, before I went to the comedy event, I also, I I volunteer at this uh, pro-life pregnancy center in the area, and I, I was there over the weekend, and I got to talk to a lot of moms who are in need. They were there getting supplies, getting baby clothes, getting free cribs and things that people had donated, which by the way, we're going to do a big uh, donation through Amazon in just a couple weeks, actually next week, because next week is my 30th birthday. So we're going to do like a big donation thing in honor of my birthday to this pregnancy center. But anyway, I was there talking to these women and it just reminded me of All the things that we talk about, the importance of speaking up when it's unpopular, the importance of fighting for that which is good and right and true, speaking up especially when it comes to abortion and protection of unborn lives. When you're face-to-face with people, when you're face-to-face with the people that you're talking about, you realize that this is not a this is not an especially political situation. Yes, it is a political issue in some sense, but when you are actually in the thick of it and loving the people that you are, uh, loving the people who are actually at the center of the political issues that you're talking about day to day, you realize that these are just people. They're human beings. You realize why politics matter because people really do matter but it just reminds you the importance of boldness, of courage, of advocating for the things that you believe in. The women that I met who are uh, choosing life for their children who are in need, really what they need more than anything else. Yes, our political advocacy, like I said, matters, but really what these people need more than anything else is love. Like They needed to hear that God loves them, that God is taking care of them, and that we are there for them. And that just reminded me of the importance of that approach when it comes to all of the political issues that we talk about, especially when it comes to abortion, that we put our money where our mouth is, that we walk the walk, we don't just talk the talk. Because at the end of the day, what we're talking about, they're not political primarily issues. They're not pol- they're not uh, primarily culture war issues. These are people issues. These are human issues. These are issues of theological proportions. And what it comes down to is how we best love people. And at the end of the day, these are people who are made in the image of God, who need to hear that God loves them. And then when we go further out, how do we do that? Not just personally, most importantly, how do we do that financially? How do we do that politically? How do we create a culture in which the people who are at the center of these issues can thrive. And so those are just some things. I just wanted to get those thoughts out. Those have been percolating in my mind for the past few days. And I didn't have a new episode yesterday because I was traveling. So I wanted to get all of that out as a reminder. So I hope there's some encouragement in there uh, for all of you uh, in this kind of a little bit of a rambling introduction to the conversation that we are 
about to have. Thank you guys for being here and bearing with me through that beginning monologue. All right, before we get into the conversation, let me tell you about a new sponsor, or it's a fairly new sponsor. This is a really great sponsor because it is one of those really practical items that I'm excited about advertising, and that is Z-Stack. So Z-Stack is a specially formulated uh, immune-boosting supplement that includes zinc, quercetin, vitamin C, and vitamin D. It's formulated by Dr. Vladimir Zelenko, the world-renowned doctor that President Trump credited with his successful early treatment protocol and his decision to take hydroxychloroquine. I feel like I have to whisper that because I'm pretty sure that YouTube is going to take us off if we talk about that. But by taking Z-Stack daily, you are supercharging your immune system. Z-Stack is formulated to help combat any and all variants as well as the flu. Now, this is not a medication. This is not hydroxychloroquine. This is just a way to boost your immune system naturally through vitamins. So go to zstacklife.com slash Allie today. Enter the promo code Allie to get a small discount off your first order. That's zstacklife.com slash Allie, promo code Allie. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell everyone who you are and what you do? Hi, uh, I'm Megan Basham. I am a reporter with The Daily Wire. I, I, I cover a lot of entertainment and culture stories, but you know, personally, as a Christian, as an evangelical, I just have a lot of interest in uh, church, church stories, stories that encompass um, what we all believe in, what we're doing every week, what our, our purpose and our mission is here. So they give me a lot of leeway to cover those stories, which is nice because sometimes people go, why is the entertainment reporter always writing about church? Yeah. But it's yeah. just because I'm really passionate about the church. And um, I super appreciate the Daily Wire giving me so much freedom to cover those stories. Yeah. And it's a niche. I think maybe the general audience might wonder, is there enough content to even cover in that kind of subculture? But there absolutely is. Both you and I know yeah. that. that there's a lot that goes on just within conservative or what's considered conservative evangelicalism and what is sometimes referred to as Big Eva, the establishment evangelicalism. There's a lot to talk about there. And it's super interesting to me, obviously, we talk about that. And that is why I wanted to talk to you about this recent story that came out called How the Federal Government Used Evangelical Leaders to Spread COVID Propaganda to Churches. I saw you tweet about it, but a lot of people sent it to me saying, you have to talk about this on your show. (laughs) So that's why I wanted to have you on. Um, There's probably several people listening who haven't read it, and maybe they haven't even heard about this story. So can you first just kind of give us a rundown? Why did you decide to write this? How did this come about? Well, you know, like everybody else, um, as someone who's going to church every week, who's very involved uh, in our church life, and we have small group, we have a lot of friends, we were all sifting through all of this information on COVID, on masks, on vaccinations, on uh, lockdown policies, just everything you could think of going, how does the Bible speak to this? How how is our church talking about this? So it really started there just as a personal issue. My kids are at a small Christian school. There was a lot of debate about masks there. So like everyone else, uh, it was just a major topic. And when I would go to a lot of the resources that I would typically use, a lot of major pastors, podcasts, things like that, um, one man just kept turning up again and again. And that was NIH director, the National Institutes of Health director, Francis Collins. 
And he was presented in all of these interviews as someone who is a man of integrity, a Bible-believing Christian himself, someone who believes in the sanctity of human life. And um, I'll just be very transparent that for me, part of the frustration of all of those interviews and podcasts and webinars was that um, his word was kind of treated as medically authoritative. And um, any questioning of what he was saying regarding things like children being in masks at school, whether churches should gather, uh, issues like uh, like who should be vaccinated, if there's ever a good reason maybe to forego vaccination or delay vaccination. Um, it felt like there was really only one message coming from all major pastors and all major Christian media. And on, on top of that, um, as a reporter, there were some things that Collins was saying that just a little alarm bell went off yeah. in my ear. Um, when he was talking about the lab leak theory being a conspiracy, and you started to see a lot of these big evangelical outlets like Christianity Today treating it as um, almost sinful to talk about. Whereas I knew as a reporter, no, that's actually a pretty reasonable hypothesis if you look at the facts on the ground. And since then, of course, it has come out that um, there may have been some, some personal motivation with Francis Collins and his subordinate, Anthony Fauci, to treat that as kind of a crazy conspiracy theory when it turns out, no, actually, that was that was a pretty reasonable uh, notion. Yeah. And, you know, as you alluded to, Francis Collins has been someone who has been praised by evangelicals for a while. When it was announced that he was retiring later last year, you had several Christians, public Christians, influential Christians come out and um, talk about how wonderful Francis Collins is. David French, of course, called him a national treasure. Russell Moore said, I admire greatly the wisdom, expertise, and most of all, the Christian humility and grace of Francis Collins. I cannot wait to see how God uses him next. Tim Keller, as good uh, as NIH director is at his craft, he's an even better friend. And so he has really good street cred. And yet his views um, that are uh, pro-life views that are held by the majority of Christians are not necessarily shared by Francis Collins. There's also been some other problematic things about the things he's espoused and the things he's funded at the NIH, right? Right. And that was, um, you know, when I started digging into the story, uh, first, I looked at what is everyone saying and being troubled by the fact that it was pretty much a uniform reaction. There wasn't much room for discussion or debate. There were no uh, other medical opinions, other medical experts offered. But then I started looking at Francis Collins specifically. And as the director of the NIH, you know, he was not just platformed as a faithful brother. He was specifically, I can give you an example, Rick Warren called him a man of integrity, a man you can trust. And yeah. Christianity Today presented him as a man who believes in the sanctity of human life. Well, if you're a pro-lifer and you look at his views, they are not probably going to align with your idea of uh, valuing the sanctity of human life. So what Francis Collins, um, in his work at the NIH, has funded a lot of research that involves fetal tissue. It involves harvesting organs from, at times, full-term infants, full-term born babies. Uh, they're, they're, I, I don't know the accuracy of these charges, but some medical doctors 
There's been reporting, they've come forward saying some of these organs, kidneys, ureters, could only have been taken from still live infants. So that's something I'm still looking into. But we do know that he approved grants for research at the University of Pittsburgh that involved uh, grafting infant scalps onto lab rats. And so that's one issue. And then you turn to another initiative that Francis Collins very personally and boldly advanced. And that was a four-year initiative uh, for what they're calling sexual and gender minorities to uh, give money and research grants to specifically advance their health. That's how they're framing it. And some of that research has involved grants to um, a doctor in California who has given opposite sex hormones to children as young as eight. Uh, Another reporter friend of mine who's been doing a lot of great work on this, Brandon Showalter at the Christian Post, Mm -hmm. uh, discovered that some of these children were foster kids. They they had no one really looking out for them. And they're being given these kind of hormones that could be life-altering permanently. And along with that research, there were also girls who were given mastectomies as young as 13. So some really frankly, just appalling research going on there. And that's the kind of thing that I go, when you platform this man as a medical authority, I think that's something that a lot of Christians would want to know about his background. Yes. And, you know, I could see some people saying, well, you know, he is the head of the NIH, but maybe he doesn't direct all of the funding for all of the different projects, which may be to some degree some kind of excuse, but he has actually explicitly come out in favor of the... Uh, so-called sexual revolution, the LGBTQ revolution, and what he would call sexual minorities. He, at least rhetorically, is completely supportive of the idea that a man can become a woman and can identify as the opposite sex. And this is someone, again, that Tim Keller, that Russell Moore, that David French, all of these people who consider themselves conservative theologically, at least, Christians, are all praising and saying that he is a wonderful representative of Christianity when he apparently is starkly opposed to the biblical definition of sex, the biblical definition of gender. And certainly when life begins, as you mentioned, there's a 2010 New Yorker article in which he's quoted saying that he doesn't actually know when life begins, which is exactly why he approved of these grants to do, um, you know, the stem cell research. And of course, as you mentioned, the grotesque experimentation on babies, aborted babies through the University of Pittsburgh and elsewhere. So knowing his explicit views on all of that, I'm wondering how he gained such a such a reputation for a man of integrity, as Rick Warren said, among the evangelical community. How did that happen? Well, you know, I think you have to look at the fact that he is an incredibly accomplished scientist. He mapped the human genome. He, you know, was one of the leading researchers on that project. He's somebody who is at the very pinnacle of government power. He, you know, he's, he's running the NIH. It doesn't get much more uh, bureaucratically powerful than that. So I, I think that certainly played a role. And, and I'll be honest, as you dug into how people say they met him, um, you know, I have to say there seemed to be a certain elitist circles going on. Um, you know, Rick Warren mentioned that they met at Davos in Switzerland wow. at the World Economic Forum. Yeah, which if you're not familiar, that that is the gathering of the world's billionaires and heads of state. And so I think there was a sense um, maybe just being sort of starry eyed at having access to somebody who travels in those you know very sort of Tony elite circles. 
Um, you know, so I'm not trying to impugn people's motives, but as you looked into Francis Collins, it was kind of funny, the places that he kept popping up again and again. And in a Time Magazine story, they they named him one of the Christian intelligentsia and mentioned this very sort of elite book club that he attends with people like the New York Times, David Brooks and Pete Wenner at The Atlantic. And so it, you just kept getting the sense that these are people who travel in very rare circles and that maybe um, that was part of the appeal was sort of having access to somebody who operates at such a high level in the world. I mean, not many of us are getting invited to Davos. Right. And I'm wondering how he got connected and how he decided or who tapped him to be kind of the publicist for masking, for vaccines, even um, uh, just meeting virtually as churches. That was something that he was advocating for um, last year and in 2020. Do you know what the process was in Francis Collins kind of reaching out to Russell Moore, Ed Stetzer, you know, Rick Warren, these people that he was kind of uh, being a messenger to and through? Like, how did that happen? How did the messaging get formulated? Is there something like official systematic that was happening behind the scenes? Or if you know, was it kind of more organic? Like they were already friends and Francis Collins just called them up and said, hey, I know you've got big congregations. Like, let me come and talk to you guys about vaccines. Well, I mean, what I can tell you is one, I I wasn't able to get a whole lot of hard details on that because um, all of the men in this report that I wrote would not speak to me. They didn't want to talk about Francis Collins. So, I mean, I, I can tell you that I did call Ed Stetzer. I called Russell Moore, David French, Rick Warren, Tim Keller. I, I did reach out to all of these people. Um, and so none of them responded. Uh, I, I did hear back from Rick Warren's assistant who said, I'll let you know if he would like to say something. And I never heard back. I, I heard back from Russell Moore's assistant saying he has COVID. Um, so he's not available to speak right now. But beyond that, I never heard anything. So I was never able to get hard details from them as to how that happened. But what I can tell you is that, you know, as I was doing the research and kind of gathering facts for my story, uh, one thing I was able to figure out is that um, this was very intentional. That that was not hidden, that, that they weren't shy about being very clear about that. In some of that Time Magazine reporting, they specifically referenced that, well, Anthony Fauci had been sort of sent out to speak to the secular media because he was perceived as um, a very strong evangelical Christian. They specifically sent Francis Collins out to use those connections in the evangelical world to spread uh, really what the government wanted spread as far as these are the lockdown policies we believe in, these are the mask policies. And as you listen to all of these interviews, all of these webinars, in totality, um, it was fairly dismissive even. I I have to say it was even sneering. There was one interview with N.T. Wright, famous theologian N.T. Wright, where they sort of made a joke about um, these these churches who think Jesus is my vaccine or Satan can't get into my church so they don't lock down. And it was just very dismissive. And it was sort of surprising to go, you know, we should be having a discussion about this as believers. We should be having an open discussion about this. And instead it was you know, take this man's word. And and I think that that was very deliberate. Yeah. As you go through and listen to the podcast, as you listen to the interviews, he was really clear in saying, pastors, I exhort you, please use your platforms to explain to your people that um, 
this is the right method of addressing COVID. And not just the right method medically, but that this is a gospel issue. This is loving your neighbor. Right. Um, it is following Jesus to wear your mask. And so really a lot of things that moved into the range of legalism. And yeah. so you kind of went, we're not just talking about a man's medical opinion. And so he was very much leveraging that. And he was very clear that I am here because you have a captive audience in your churches. And I am asking you to spread this message to your captive audience. We're talking about Ed Stetzer. We're talking about the Billy Graham Center. We're talking about the Gospel Coalition Christianity Today. Um, Russell Moore. Uh, those are the people. N.T. Wright. Those are some of the people that interviewed him. Um, Tim Keller had the joint interview. And as you said, that's what struck me. Um, last year when I was listening to some of these interviews is just the condescension that was expressed, which doesn't really surprise me because actually mm. when I've heard Russell Moore talk to other people, uh, I think it was an interview with David French, maybe sometime last year, maybe it was even in 2020, talking about critical race theory. It was once again, it was kind of presented as this boogeyman, this, um, this thing that doesn't really exist and just these fear-mongering evangelicals. They have no idea what they're talking about, those rubes, and we can just kind of dismiss them right. by laughing at them. And that's the exact same impression that I got in at least parts of these interviews with Francis Collins, as you said, kind of dismissing any Christian who said, you know, I think we have an obligation to meet in person as some kind of conspiracy theorist who didn't believe in COVID or believe that Jesus was their vaccine when that's, you know, that's a, a straw man. That's not actually what pastors like John MacArthur uh, was saying when he insisted that his church continue to meet in person or any church that I know. But that's kind of how I think not just Francis Collins and these pastors kind of effectively persuaded people onto their side and into their perspective of everything going on. But really, we've seen the CDC kind of do the same thing. We've seen the liberal secular media do the same thing rather than present to you the data showing, hey, this is why we believe that masks work or whatever it is, just kind of making you feel stupid and making you feel <laughs> crazy and like a conspiracy theorist if you don't agree with them. And yet, in one of these interviews, Francis Collins, he held up his cloth mask and he said, this is a life-saving device. This is not an infringement upon your liberty. Both of those things are incorrect. Like now we actually right. have data proving. And I mean, what we've kind of always known through common sense and even what Dr. Fauci said in the very beginning of all of this, that those cloth masks are not doing anything. And yet Francis Collins made everyone listening who didn't agree with him feel stupid for not for not buying this line. I mean, it's crazy. Well, and, you know, getting at sort of that steering, it, it was really kind of hard, to be honest with you, going through some of this material and going, um, one of the, you brought up John MacArthur, the moments that really struck me was when uniformly Tim Keller and Francis Collins agreed that John MacArthur's church, they didn't specifically name John MacArthur, but it was at the time that he was really in a high profile fight with uh, Governor Gavin Newsom mm -hmm. of California. And they said that churches that are uh, were not shutting down, were refusing to obey lockdown orders and continuing to meet, as directed in Hebrews, were um, the, represented the bad and the ugly of good, bad and ugly responses to COVID. Wow. And that just kind of blew me away that I yeah. went, Wow. So it wasn't even like, let's have an open conversation. We we prayed through it. We feel led to do something different. It, it was very specifically, they're in the wrong here. I mean, the, the subtext is they're sinning. 
by doing this. So that kind of blew my mind, to be honest with you. Um, And, you know, as you look at it, you go from a reporterly fashion, you go, you kind of dug in and went, there were also some really uh, strong personal motivations, as it turns out, as we're seeing in the massive news cycle now for Francis Collins to dismiss, for example, the Wuhan lab leak theory as conspiracy. And they did. I mean, he specifically said in the Christianity Today webinar, this was human made. Mother Nature did not make this one. Well, it turns out that, you know, um, the NIH may have been funding some gain of function research there in Wuhan. And it now looks like we don't know for sure. But not only did the coronavirus um, very possibly come from a lab, it looks likely that it came from a lab. So you go, you guys may have helped him cover up something that the American public needs to know about. Yes. In one of his, um, in in one of, I don't have it actually in my notes, but in one of the speeches that he gave or interviews that he gave, he again kind of laughed at this idea that this could have leaked from a lab. He called this a conspiracy theory and he said this definitely has natural origins. And like you said, it's probably not true that it has natural origins. And Francis Collins was also one of the people when we saw a lot of those emails come out his emails, Dr. Fauci's emails, who said that, you know, we they quickly have to take down this group of fringe, what he called fringe mm. epidemiologists in the Barrington, Great Barrington Declaration um, that gave a different scientific perspective of COVID and the mitigation measures that were being put in place from uh, because of COVID. Francis Collins came out, you know, basically said that was propaganda, wanted to push back at that when really he has been a purveyor of misinformation. Has there been any apology, any correction, any clarification from the people who, the Christians who did platform Francis Collins, um, now that it's come out that he actually was spreading misinformation about things like masks? Have they have they said anything about that to correct the record? No. And, you know, I'm going to tell you that's been one of the really frustrating parts of covering this. Again, they, they, would, they specifically would not talk to me, but they're not addressing it at all. And I want to point out something that happened in regards to how they were addressing this once some of this information came out. And we learned that Francis Collins was, you know, potentially just wrong or possibly lying about some of these things. Uh, Christianity Today ran an essay from Ed Stetzer saying that it is a conspiracy theory to spread things like the Wuhan lab leak. Well, instead of doing the journalistically ethical thing, the thing that I would certainly be required to do here at the Daily Wire, which is acknowledge uh, this was misleading, we made a mistake, here's an editor's note, they just took the article down. The article disappeared. The only reason I was able to read it was because it was still available on the web archive on the Wayback Machine. So you couldn't disappear it entirely, but you could... it's pretty bad when the secular journalism world has higher ethics than the Christian media. And by that same token, none of them have been willing to talk to me. And as far as I know, no other reporters are asking them. So they're not talking to anyone about it. Um, I, you know, at, at the risk of hubris, what I've kind of been getting all week since the story broke is I've seen a lot of um, establishment types <laughs> writing tweets and essays and social media posts about divisiveness and tone and how we can't let this disagreement divide us. Now, is this about me? Is this about this story? I don't know because they don't say specifically, but um, this has been the only response. And it's frustrating to me because I go, this issue is not about divisiveness. This issue is not about disagreement. There are, you know, some serious charges here, either of a lack of wisdom 
or potentially colluding to let the federal government spread inaccurate information or cover their trail on some things that uh, they shouldn't have been doing. So for me, it's it's kind of stunning that I'm like, are we just all going to move on from this? And nobody has to answer any tough questions because nobody in Christian media is asking. And uh, me working for a secular media outlet, they're not talking to me. Okay, taking a quick break from that conversation to tell you about our second sponsor for the day, and that is GenuCell. So Valentine's Day is coming up just a week away, which means there's only one week left to save 60% on GenuCell's most popular package for Valentine's Day. From now until Valentine's Day, get the brand new GenuCell anti-aging primer for a radiant glow and flawless finish free with every order of GenuCell's most popular package using the same goodness that we all love, GenuCell new primer, uses botanical extracts to deeply hydrate and brighten your fresh look. There is a personal testimonial that I've got included here from um, Soretta. She's got a five-star review. She's from Tacoma, Washington. She says, this primer is amazing. I put it on when my skin is dry. This primer gives such an airbrushed look and makes me not even want to apply anything else. I love that my face glows right through my foundation in love. So you can take her word for it. Try it for yourself. See what you think. They've got a money back guarantee. That's how much they know that you'll love it. Go to genucel.com slash Allie. That's G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash Allie for 60% off their most popular package. Genucel.com slash Allie. Genucel.com slash Allie. It's so interesting how the accusations of divisiveness always seem to be always seem to be from the same kind of people going the same direction. If you are pro-BLM, pro-CRT, if you are uh, pro-whatever CNN, CDC talking point is out there about COVID, you are never accused of being divisive. Heck, if you say that John, or imply that John MacArthur's church is part of the bad and the ugly of the response to COVID, that's not seen as divisive. That's seen as, I don't know, speaking the truth in love or just being compassionate and calling out what you think is dangerous and deadly, whatever it is. But the accusations of divisiveness only rise up when it's coming from the conservative side, when it's coming from the conservative end saying, hey, you know what? I don't think the organization of Black Lives Matter is really standing for things that evangelicals should stand for. Hey, I think that this racially divisive rhetoric probably isn't good. Or, hey, let's kind of question some of the narratives about about COVID, or maybe we should question this idea that in order to love our neighbor, we have to get a vaccine that doesn't stop infection or transmission. Like, let's talk about that. That apparently is being divisive. Um, and, you know, I get that a lot. The accusations <laughs> of of not getting like of not having the right tone are only ever applied to people on the right side of the aisle. But if you have some sassy social justice warrior who professes to be a Christian on the left side of the aisle who wants to, you know, speak truth to power, well, then, you know, they should be applauded and they're courageous, even though they're really just repeating mainstream secular talking right, points right. about things. Um <laughs> So it's really interesting. What else has the response been to this? Has has there been a, a positive response from people? Anyone who has said, "Wow, I didn't, I didn't know this," and this is really enlightening. Yeah. So I have gotten a, from from your average people. I've gotten a lot of messages. I've gotten a lot of encouraging notes saying, "We so felt this, and we kind of yeah. knew this was going on, and we so appreciate that someone's talking about it." But you know, I kind of just want to circle back for one second as far as the negative response. 
and go, I had an interview scheduled coincidentally with Francis Collins um, that was not related to this piece. But right after the piece came out, I happened to get a message from a PR company that I've worked with before and said, Francis Collins is working on this educational project with curriculum. Would you like a time slot to interview him? And I said, absolutely. I would like that time slot. Yes, please. So uh, I said, yes, I scheduled it. And um, I, I showed up for this Zoom interview and I sat there and time of the interview went by and I kind of went, okay. And I messaged the, the, the PR people and they said, oh, we're just running late. You know, hang on, hang tight. A few more minutes went by. Ultimately, about 15 minutes went by. And um, suddenly the, the Zoom camera clicked off and it said the, the meeting has been canceled. And it took me a little time to get a hold of someone and sort it out. But they told me that uh, Francis Collins felt that you would not stick to the topics at hand, which I would just like to say <laughs> to is not fair. true. I am right. Yeah. I am a professional. I, I very much I read through all the press materials they sent. Okay. Yes, I was going to ask them tough questions, but my point of all of that being that he ran away from the interview that yeah. we had already scheduled and was over time, and none of the Christian media has said gosh, he needs to answer some questions. You know, they all kind of pretended like that didn't happen with one exception. And uh, the reason I bring this up is Eric Erickson, conservative host, who I like very much. Yeah. um, He said he was bothered that Francis Collins did not uh, go ahead with our interview. And but he wrote an essay. I read it. I yes. And he said, I have since called some of these people because I was troubled by Megan's reporting which is fine. I'm glad he did that. But what troubled me was that once again, he does not specify who he talked to, what their specific defense was. It it kind of said, Francis Collins may not have known about some of this funding, even though he's the head of the NIH. And we always say, right, the buck stops with the leader. He is the leader. But the implication was he may not have known. And I spoke to some people and these are good guys. And I like Eric, but I'm like, that is not an acceptable answer. It is not okay to just say, maybe um, they didn't know. Maybe he didn't know. Well, well, we won't know because they won't talk. So somebody needs to be pressing them. I'm like, I'm going to assume at this point, they're not going to talk to me. But I do kind of want to rally other Christian media, other reporters to go ask them about this. So, um, you know, beyond that... Average people in the pews, the response has been really wonderful. Um, I've gotten just so many emails of people thanking me, saying that it has brought up fruitful discussions at their churches, that they showed it to their pastors, and their pastors felt like their eyes were open to some things. And, um, you know, so I just said, I, I just felt really humbled to be in a position to open up some discussion when it's been so frustrating for all of us to go, where was this debate and um, yeah. this open inquiry before this? Yeah. And, you know, one part of Eric's article that I thought was interesting, and you can respond to it however you want to. It's okay if you don't necessarily have the answer to it. But I thought it was an interesting question. If a Christian is the head of some kind of secular company, is is it okay for a Christian to be the CEO of a secular company? I don't know, like Hulu or Netflix or something Mm -hmm. like that, where you know that some of the content that is going out, a lot of the content that is going out and a lot of the money that is being spent is not being spent and the content that is being published is not being published in a way that necessarily glorifies God? Like, is it possible for a Christian to be in that kind of position and without completely endorsing everything that goes on in the company and still try to use their platform to the glory of God? Because maybe that would be the defense of Francis Collins, that 
I'm not even I'm not saying this is true because I don't believe this, but that he did the best that he could with the platform and the position that he had. And there were things that went on at the NIH that he didn't necessarily have direct control over or he didn't necessarily agree with. But that's just kind of how Christians have to interact with the public sphere. That's just kind of how it goes. What would your response be to something like that? Because that was kind of what Eric Erickson, I think, was getting at in his article. Well, you know, two things I want to say about that. I I can respect that as an argument. But the first thing to know is that that is uh, something of a dodge, because Mm. at least um, when we talk about the fetal cell research, for instance, Francis Collins is not someone who who just had to sort of preside over it and say what he had to say to work in government. He has vocally supported fetal tissue research and he has directed record level spending to it. He's the guy at the top of the food chain here. He did that. So I don't think it's possible to say, gosh, you know, we kind of wish that it wasn't doing, you know, that our, our, our branch of the government wasn't doing this. No, he has argued for it in a lot of interviews. He's very much on record for that. He, In fact, he lamented when the Trump administration pulled back funding for some of that kind of research. So I, I don't think that washes. Uh, yeah. The same thing goes with the trans research. Um When you look at the documents that are available, and I link to them in my article, he said quite clearly, I am an advocate. I am an ally. I believe in allyship. Now, we know that those words have meaning. So when you put that to the initiative and you put your face saying, I am a trans ally, and then you grant funding to that kind of research, I don't think you can hide from it and say, gosh, it's just something that was going on. I didn't necessarily agree with it. Yeah. Now, also that said, I... I very rarely use this analogy, um, and and I know that it is a bit dicey, but I don't think when we're talking about that kind of research built on the bodies of aborted babies that it is too far to say, would you have said that um, in the Nazi era? Would you have said using the bodies of murdered people is okay if it furthers scientific research. And I think we're all sort of, that takes you back, but that is what we're talking about. We're talking about the bodies of murdered human beings that we're building a research complex on. And is that something that we want as Christians to support and say, well, it's going to happen anyway. I mean, this isn't Hulu. This isn't Coca-Cola putting out some material that, you know, we just kind of want to shield our eyes from. We're, t- we're talking about an industrial complex furthering murder. <laughs> yeah. And I just want to support what you've reported on and what you're saying now. We did an episode on Francis Collins several months ago and something that I found in The Federalist, they reported that Collins's NIH provided nearly $3 million, which you mentioned this earlier, in tax dollars to support a fetal organ harvesting operation by the University of Pittsburgh using human fetal tissue ranging from six to 42 weeks gestation. So 42 weeks for people who don't know, that is full term and then some. So fully formed, we're talking seven, eight pound babies. Um, And then, as you also said, he's not just kind of passively funding this uh, experimentation, human experimentation when it comes to trans research. He had a message, an official message. This is not just the NIH. This is Francis Collins um, celebrating Pride Month last year 
He said, you know, celebrating Pride Month and recognizing the struggle stories and victories of those who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, and others under the sexual and and gender minority umbrella. I applaud the courage and resilience it takes for individuals to live openly and authentically, particularly considering the systemic challenges, discrimination, and even violence that those in other underrepresented groups face all too often. As a white, cisgender, and heterosexual man, this is evangelical hero Francis Collins. I have not had the same experiences, but I am committed to listening. So this is just, I mean, this is queer theory and people know that that's under the umbrella of critical theory. And I mean, okay, even if you said, well, he's a Christian and he doesn't personally, he doesn't want to personally endorse necessarily lifestyles that the Bible doesn't endorse, but he's just a part of this organization. That statement does not read that way at all. That is a full-throated endorsement. And on the NIH's website, they actually have a pronoun guide that includes not just like she, her, but like Zay and Zir, all, I mean, the craziest, Mm. most absurd stuff. And you would think that as a Christian and as a scientist, um, as a Christian scientist, not in the, you know, religious sense, but you know what I mean, that you would speak up. I mean, isn't that also what it means to be a Christian in the public sphere, that you speak up against destructive ideologies that are literally and very tangibly hurting the most vulnerable among us? I mean, that seems like that would be his responsibility. And he not only doesn't do that, he fully endorses it. And yet we have Tim Keller and Russell Moore and David French saying that he is a national treasure and a treasure to the church. I don't get it. I, I don't either. And what's really bothersome to me is I go, and, and they somehow again and again don't have to answer for it. And that's what's so frustrating. I go, I, I don't know. I don't know Russell Moore, for example, his heart motivations, but I know that these things were brought to his attention before he made that statement on Twitter about faithful service. Francis Collins is great faithful service and how God's going to use him next. Uh, these things were brought to his attention. So it almost felt to me like a belligerent response. Like, no, I'm going to go ahead and praise him. And and so these questions were never answered. How can you do that? They've never addressed how, how do you praise someone who has so specifically undermined the biblical idea of male and female and biblical sexual ethics? They have not done that. And, and again, when you look at the actual initiative that he put out there, like you read from that pride statement, he has a letter at the beginning of that initiative saying that we're, we're announcing this new funding for sexual and gender minorities, uh, that, that this is something that I am putting my face, my name, my signature to as something I'm proud of. And to me, if you're going to platform that person in your pulpits, if you're going to lend him your credibility and your integrity from the people who trust you, you should have to explain how do you rationalize his yeah. public positions? Because I hear a lot about him as Daniel in the halls of Babylon, And I'm like, I see a lot of Babylon there. I see no Daniel. I I see no refusing to um, to eat the meat or to participate in their rituals. So I I really can't understand it. Yeah. And, you know, you and I have talked about and I've talked about on this show how much I have appreciated and learned from Tim Keller's work. Like I would Mm. say that some of his books like Reason for God were so formative for me in the early years of my faith. And I'm very thankful for that. I don't think that he is 
Um, obviously, he is not a thoughtless person. He's maybe one of the most thoughtful, publicly right. thoughtful Christians that we have. And so that would be my question, kind of what you just articulated, because I've seen him a few times kind of brush criticisms like this off to the side by saying, well, you can you can praise people or you can like people. You can be friends with people that you disagree with just because I don't agree with Francis Collins on everything. I'm paraphrasing here. You know, <laughs> I can still be proud of what he's done at the NIH. But okay, even if that's true, even if you just see these as slight disagreements, which I would disagree about that these are just slight disagreements. Okay, why don't you publicly grapple with that for us? Like, why don't you talk about some of the stuff that you don't approve of that your friend Francis Collins worked in, funded in, and endorsed, and then talk about how you've kind of worked in that friendship and how you've maybe tried to share the gospel and infuse the gospel into the life of Francis Collins. Don't just brush it off to the side. And by the way, you're going to passive aggressively say that John MacArthur is the bad and the ugly, possibly. Mm. That's possibly what they were implying, probably. Right, right. Um, John MacArthur is the bad and the ugly of the COVID response. But this person who endorses all of the anti-biblical things that we just talked about, that is like the national treasure and the person that we should look to as a Christian exemplar. It's it's crazy coming from Tim Keller, who I know knows better. Well, and what's really bizarre about it to me is that it wasn't just, you know, I, I don't know that I could rationalize, be like, maybe I could rationalize a little bit of Twitter praise or, a, you know, good going friend on your retirement. But it, it wasn't just that. That was kind of the point of the article that they then had him on all of their platforms that they, like I said, lent their credibility and integrity to him and brought him out and introduced him as someone, not just my friend, this isn't my friend, Francis Collins, with whom I have a few disagreements, but as the man you should be listening to in this uniquely troubling time, in this, you know, very confusing time, this is the man with the answers. So that was, you know, sort of the, the most stunning thing to me is I go, if you're going to present him as that then you have to be able to defend his record or at least explain why you're willing to listen to him despite him having such divergent views from almost any normal Bible believer that you would talk to. Any any person who um, is just going to church on Sunday, who's trying to you know, figure out how do I get through this? Well, almost all of them, if, if you look at polling, if you look at research, you go, they have a very different idea of ethics than mm -hmm. Francis Collins. And that has to be addressed. Yeah, I agree with you. And I mean, it just comes down to a question that you ask in your article, because one of the things that Francis Collins said in these interviews into these congregations was that you just have to trust the science and that it's a pastor's job to help their congregants trust the science. But is that a pastor's job? And what does that even mean? I mean, that in itself is a quasi-religious statement. It's a very dogmatic statement that we're just to yeah. trust the science. Okay, does trusting the science mean trusting what Francis Collins says about the origins of COVID, about a cloth mask being a life-saving device? Mm. Because if we trusted the science, and if that is synonymous with trusting the NIH and the CDC and Dr. Fauci, then that means we've believed a lot of misinformation over the past two years. So why are we to trust the science? And is that even a biblical directive uh, that pastors should be holding on to? To me, that sounds a lot like spiritual manipulation. Well, and, you know, I, that was, and as I said, that was kind of what started me down this whole road was the frustration of feeling that, that going that everybody is, has to be on the same page or, or you are somehow out of God's will for the church. That, that was appalling to me. I went, I, I do have questions. I do have some hesitations and knowing that I was talking to Christian doctors, pediatric cardiologists 
on other subjects going, no, this information is not correct. We are also very credentialed. We are also very um, educated, intelligent scientists, and we don't believe that this is the science. So you're right. That is such a dogmatic statement to say, trust the science, because science is not infallible. God is infallible. And so that is why on these issues, you go, where was the Christian liberty? Where was there the moment to say, I don't know, this might be sort of a food sacrifice to idols moment. Can we eat? Can we not eat? Let everybody be convinced in their own mind on this. And let you want to talk about being divisive. Let's not divide over this. Let's let people answer their own master on this. And, um, and we will continue each of us in our spirits to do what we think is best through prayer, through our own Bible study, and yes, through counsel, but through a multitude of counselors. The problem here was that there was only one counselor. All right, last sponsor for the day, and that is Annie's Kit Club, specifically Annie's Genius Box. This is for your kids ages 7 to 12. If you really want your child to become a critical thinker and a problem solver, Annie's Genius Box was created just for that. It's an excellent way to encourage your kids' curiosity while providing fun activities that are as entertaining as they are educational. So each month, your young scientist will get a new box bursting with three hands-on activities to explore an exciting STEM theme like geology, chemistry, aerodynamics, and more. I wish I had had this when I was young. Maybe I would have grown up to actually like science class. This makes it really fun. The exciting top secret mission envelope in every box will walk them through multiple amazing projects each month. This is a great way to keep your kids entertained and, you know, maybe distracted and occupied just a little bit while you're trying to make dinner without just putting them in front of the TV or giving them a device like an iPad. You want them doing something that's productive and good for their mind. And Annie's Genius Box is perfect for that. They can design a hovercraft, examine fossils, build robots, and so much more. Go to annieskitclubs.com slash Allie. Save 50% on your first box. That's annieskitclubs.com slash Allie. annieskitclubs.com slash Allie. And wow, I just think about, it just makes me so angry when I think about, even if they're not explicitly talking about John MacArthur, when they're kind of talking about the bad responses to COVID, the lack of public support uh, from the people that we're talking about, especially when they won in court. And so you can't even argue that they were defying the law because they won. The court said that they were in the right, that they had the right, that John MacArthur's church had the right to continue meeting together and that Gavin Newsom's government was actually wrong in coming after them and trying to punish them uh, for meeting. And the lack of public support for him and encouragement for what he was doing, simply being faithful, even if they disagreed, you know, that's really disappointing. You can say what you want about if you disagree with John MacArthur, I don't, but on a variety of things. But again, I think it comes down to, it seems like for these people that he's not in our club. He's not repeating the same points that we are. He, we don't like his tone. He's a little bit too rude when he talks mm-hmm. about things. And he's not as metropolitan, even though he's had a church in LA, a very diverse church, by the way, right. very ethically and racially diverse church. 
for the past 50 plus years in LA, he's not considered a part of the club. So what he did, it just wasn't posh. It wasn't sophisticated. He didn't have Francis Collins, you know, sitting on stage with him. And to me, it really does seem to come down to that, like the Davos type elite people (laughs) who just want control, just like they do in every segment of society. We can talk about the Great Reset and all that. But we can right, get into right. that. Um, it's crazy. Okay, so I want to quickly talk about. I don't want to keep you for too much longer. Although I could, we could talk for like you know <laughs> several more hours. I'm sure. But I sent you this article that I'm sure that you've read. This New York Times article called "The Dissenters Trying to Save <laughs> Evangelical from uh, Evangelicalism from Itself" by David Brooks, who I don't believe is actually a Christian <laughs> or a right. conservative, um, which is always interesting. You read this article, correct? I did. Yes, of okay. course. <laughs> yes. And so let me just sum it up a little bit for people, and then I want to get your take on it. So uh, he says in this article, there have been three big issues that have profoundly divided evangelicals, the white evangelical embrace of Donald Trump, sex abuse scandals in evangelical churches and parachurch organizations, and attitudes about race relations, especially after the killing of George Floyd. I would actually agree. I would agree that mm-hmm. those are three big things that have really divided the church. Of course, we're he falls on this is basically the people who are pro Black Lives Matter and the left wing idea of systemic racism and democratic so called solutions to systemic racism. Um, and the people who are against Donald Trump are really the people who are on the right side of evangelicalism, the right side of history. Again, to me, it comes across as these are the more sophisticated, intelligent, knowledgeable, acceptable people. And Russell Moore um, is in there, some writers from the Gospel Coalition. And uh, he talks about uh, Christian Dumay, who wrote Jesus and John Wayne, basically talking about the history of, you know, white patriarchy and tough guys. Now it's marred. Christianity. And then on the other side of it, he talks about how terrible people like Albert Muller and World Magazine are. I write... I write uh, for world opinions. And so I could see why someone like David Brooks in the New York Times, they don't like it because it's very explicitly conservative Christian. Um, And so that's basically what it is. Like we are the conservative Christians. We're the rubes over here. We don't know anything. We're not really Christian, says the non-Christian from the New York Times. And then these kind of uh, sophisticated intellectuals, the Russell Moores of evangelicalism are on the right side of it. So tell me what you thought about this. This article. Uh, well, <laughs> my first reaction, like, you know, it came out about a week after my article, and no one would talk to me. And then half the people that I cited in my reporting were cited in this. And, you know, my husband and I were kind of joking, I go, did I just get subtweeted in the New York Times? Yeah. <laughs> um, because, you know, they didn't address anything I brought up, but it was sort of hailing all the people that I had mentioned and, you know, some very concrete reporting. And I actually happened to have come from World before I went to the Daily Wire. I was the entertainment at World for a number of years, and I worked on the Daily News podcast at World. So I knew a lot about the ins and outs of what was going on there. And what made me laugh so much reading this article is I went, once again, there is just sort of a a broad statement made for which there is no actual specific detail. He he said in there that... um, Young reporters learned not to pitch stories to Trumpist editors or something to that effect. And look, I worked there. There were no Trump, I, not one, not one single editor that I would go, oh, that person was very MAGA. That, that person World Magazine. Was very, yeah, yeah, not one. 
Um, yeah, there may be a couple of the Daily Wire, but yeah. but uh, but at yeah, at World Magazine, there were none. I literally not one. So I I, I read that, and my my mind just kind of exploded because I went, "This is um, it's a lie." I don't know how else to put it other than. David Brooks is being outright dishonest. Either he doesn't know and he's making an assumption based on something he was told or or he's lying. So either way, the information is incorrect and it has now been spread in the New York Times. And you want to talk about misinformation. And then I watched these so-called dissenters who are saving evangelicalism post this story all over their social media platforms. And I went, you are right now slandering a news organization with incorrect information. Is anyone going to ask about that? Yeah. Because um, I, that actually is wrong. That is a wrong thing to do. That is a wrong way to use your platform. And you all just did it. So that was really frustrating to me. And I'm sitting here watching it going, this is one, not a defense of what happened with Francis Collins to say that we're not Trumpists. And that is the frustrating thing that I go, gosh, he's been out of office for over a year. Can we now really talk about the issues we have without referencing Donald Trump? Yeah. No, it doesn't seem like they're able to, but he does talk about that, okay, it's not essentially Trump. It's something much deeper that's uh, dividing evangelicalism. And that's probably true. Unfortunately, I do think it comes down to a progressivism versus conservatism, at least in a way, not completely left versus right or Republican versus Democrat. I don't think it's so simple to categorize our disagreements within evangelical Christianity as that, but it is somewhat. It is whether you take a more progressive democratic stance on racial issues in the country or whether you take a more conservative stance on that. Of course, from my perspective, a biblical stance on that. Right, right. Or it really does kind of come down to, in my opinion, when it comes to like journalists for the New York Times, who they see as good and bad within Christianity, is whether or not that person votes Democrat. That seems to be what it comes down to, right? Well, and that was my point about saying they make everything about Trump that I go, yeah, he admitted that there were deeper issues, except that in order to sort of slime World Magazine, he... he boldly lied and said they're Trumpist editors. That's how you know you can dismiss them. And there aren't, so you can't. So let's yeah. go ahead and talk about those deeper issues. And um, it's very weird to me to read that story and go, we are being told if you are more theologically conservative, if you have more orthodox views on uh, gender roles and sexuality, you are the one who's political. You yeah. are the one who's being political. And I go, you, you're appealing right. to the New York Times as a defense. Who's being political here? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This is one of my peeves and something that I talk about <laughs> talk about a lot. Of course, I mean, I do talk about politics. I'm open about that. That is what this, uh, you know, this a huge part of, of what this podcast is about. But if I post something or one of my followers post something about something that Joe Biden does or something about abortion, they're accused of being overly political, of putting the gospel to the side and putting politics first, which, of course, that's that's not what it is. Um, but if someone on the other side posts a story, say they posted that story that turned out to be a false narrative that the Border Patrol agent was whipping migrants. Of course, that wasn't right. true. If someone reposts that, well, that's not being political. That's not being divisive. That's just standing for what's true. Or if certainly you repeat talking points about race and the police in this country, then that's not being divisive. That 
that's not being political. That's just being biblical. Again, all of the accusations of divisiveness and tone always are leveled towards people on the right, whereas leftism, especially within Christianity, is almost just seen as quirky or is seen as neutral. Even the default. Yeah. Yeah. And I've even noticed among people, and I don't want to name too many names, but people who identify as conservative Christians themselves, they are much more willing to invite um, more liberal progressive Christians to on their podcast to do interviews with them, to speak at their conferences than they would a Christian who is outspokenly pro-Trump mm. or something like that. Um, because again, especially I think when it comes to these social justice, racial justice issues, being liberal on those um, is seen as much more acceptable than being conservative on those. Mm-hmm. And then an article like this basically just dismisses the other side of the arguments as not Christian, as as you know, whatever it is, unintellectual, unintelligent, again, just like Francis Collins did, not actually trying to grapple with, well, what is the anti-CRT, anti-social justice side really trying to say? Where are we coming from when we are talking about gender roles, the importance of gender or race or whatever it is, these so-called divisive subjects? Like, what is our actual argument? It seems that too many including David Brooks, they don't want to grapple with that. There's a lot of really good opinions in world opinion. And like mm. we are edited very strictly and we have to we have to support everything we say with research, with, um, you know, biblical references. If we're making a theological argument, we're not just putting things out there. I would love to see David Brooks and all of the people who say that they are grieved over evangelicalism <laughs> in this article. Well, why don't you grapple with some of the arguments that we're putting forth? And let's see. Let's see which argument wins. They don't seem to be willing to do that. Yeah. And I can tell you that if that David Brooks editorial went through the editorial process at World, he would have been required to do that. He would have been required to go, okay, who are these Trumpist editors? What is the evidence that they're Trumpist? Uh, You need to talk a little bit about Kristen Dumez's views that fall outside of mainstream evangelicalism. And so none of that happens evidently at the New York Times, which I would not expect it to. But, um, and you know, part of what's frustrating is that not only do they not answer these conservative figures, these um, theologically conservative, very biblical people who have been sort of defined by politics when I don't think they're political at all. They, they, they just adhere closely to biblical standard like a John MacArthur are being sidelined. They're being treated as though they're fringe. And that's been really frustrating to me, watching a John MacArthur or a Vody Bauckham yeah. or an Owen Strand or people like that suddenly um, they're not respectable to talk about or reference anymore, despite decades. In John MacArthur's case, something like 50, 60 years of faithful service. And suddenly he's quarantined over here. He's somebody that that is not respectable to reference or talk about or engage with his ideas. Um, So that's probably one of the most alarming things to me is going, we're going to treat this person who has you want to talk about faithful service, forget Francis Collins. Look at John MacArthur. That is decades of faithful service. We're not going to engage with his ideas. We're just going to act like we're a little bit embarrassed of him. 
Well, you know, Megan, if there's anything our society needs more of, it's people who are willing to be brave enough to criticize conservative Christians. There just aren't (laughs) enough people doing that. So we really should applaud people like David Brooks and all of the people that he includes in this article who are just so heroically saving you and I from ourselves um, because we, you know, we just don't have any idea what's going on. And so thank you so much to Russell Moore and, and David Brooks for pointing out where we are wrong. We just, we need more people with that kind of courage and gumption that are willing to criticize right-wing Christians. We just don't get it enough. Because there's such a huge cost to pay, right? If if you do that, you get praised in the New York Times, you get new deals with the Atlantic, you get uh, plum seats at CNN, and uh, I'm hearing NBC. And so suddenly, yeah, there's there's a huge cost to pay. And and maybe it is a cost. You have to now engage with um, a lot of establishment media. And And they um, love it, though. They love it. I wouldn't want to pay that cost. No, I wouldn't. But that's, I feel like that's just the club that they, again, I don't know their hearts. It just seems like this is a an elitist club. And basically, my husband and I talk about this a lot, that this group kind of that we're talking about, really, they're they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed that people who call themselves Christians aren't as worldly when it comes to, well, I don't want to say that in everything, because I know they would argue that, you know, supporting Trump is worldly. But it seems like they're just embarrassed that we can't get on board with some left-wing arguments about race and social justice and maybe even gender, although I would say most of them would call themselves conservative on that. They're really just embarrassed by us. They're embarrassed that we maybe in their mind don't have the same credentials as they do, don't have the same background as they do, aren't writing for The Atlantic and aren't parroting the talking points of The New York Times. And they would really rather associate themselves with atheist, anti-Christian writers at the New York Times, it seems, than fellow Christians who happen to have a different perspective than them on politics. Yeah. And, you know, you don't want to be just continually critical, but there is a moment when you go, you know, a small thing that happened this week with Tim Keller praising uh, Stephen Colbert, late night host. Um, You know, he's very crass. He's um, very left wing. He's been very critical of Christians. And I think it was just hard for a lot of people to understand, okay, Tim Keller, you you don't ever praise anyone coming from the um, right side of the political spectrum. And then you hold up and praise Stephen Colbert. So I, I don't think that the reaction to that moment was so much about him praising Stephen Colbert in that moment. If people felt like over time in recent years that Tim Keller had been open-minded and um, and and willing to engage with ideas coming from the theolo- more theological conservative, more politically conservative wing, then I think people would not have reacted to that the way that they did. Yeah. And there was some negative criticism. But I really think it's just because they go, gosh, the, the punching always comes um, yeah. towards the right. It always goes in that direction. Yeah. And, I, you know, you go, I, look, it's going to get more embarrassing. It's not going to get less embarrassing to be a believer. So yeah. I and kind I- of am in the... Sorry to interrupt you. Let me let me just play that clip of Stephen Colbert so people can know Mm -hmm. what we're talking about. And yes, there were a lot of people that we are right now talking about who praised this clip and I'll get your uh, reaction to it. I was wondering. Is there any, you know, does your faith and your comedy ever overlap (laughs) and does one ever win out? 
I think ultimately, us all being mortal, the faith will win out at the end. <laughs> but I certainly hope when I get to heaven, Jesus has a sense of humor. So I, a lot of people were praising him for kind of being sophisticated in this answer, which I'm not saying it was bad. I'm not saying I, you know, expected him to lay out the Roman road right there. I don't believe you have to present the entire gospel message when someone asks you about your faith. So, you know, some things that he was saying, he was saying I get, but I was immediately a little skeptical because of the people that I saw praising him, specifically someone like Glennon Doyle. I was like, oh, uh, well, you know, I, I just if people like that are saying that this was a great gospel moment, I'm just not so sure that this is something that we want to elevate. Because honestly, there wasn't very much gospel in it. It, might, it was an interesting point. Yeah. But it, maybe it sounded kind of eloquent. But I don't know. I'm not sure if I walked away from that understanding any more about the gospel or what Stephen Colbert thinks about the gospel. Right. And I think that was kind of part of it. And, you know, it's been a couple of days since I saw it, but he says something about, you know, death doesn't win or, you know, something about death. And it was fine. I mean, you know, you go, if you yeah. take that isolated moment for what it was, it was fine. But it didn't make me go, oh, Stephen Colbert is this deep intellectual Christian thinker that we should all look to. It was more Stephen Colbert is a um, left-wing entertainment elite. And so we're looking for an opportunity to praise him for something. And I went, why, why are we doing that? Why do we look for an opportunity to praise someone who everything else about um, their public persona does not affirm uh, biblical ideology, biblical sexual ethics, bibl biblical outlook on just about anything. Yeah. So it just seemed like this sort of odd desperation to go, is there some, oh, there's a moment, there's a moment with a left-wing personality that we can praise. And I, I guess I just wonder, what is that impulse? Why do you feel the need to do that? Um, yeah. And again, I think if it were coming from a place where you know, maybe Tim Keller goes through and praises all sorts of public figures for all sorts of statements about the gospel. I People might have responded differently, but it yeah. feels like how, how often does Tim Keller cite a celebrity and would he praise, say, I don't know, um, a Matt Walsh or a Ben Shapiro? Yeah, I, I would love to see that. Yeah, me too. And yeah, I I don't want to put like I, I don't want to hold Stephen Colbert to too high of a standard and say that no one can agree with or praise um, what he said. But again, I think it's the disparity in who is lifted up by someone like mm -hmm. Tim Keller and who is not and what counts as what does count as like a a good witness in secular society as a Christian. Is it Stephen Colbert? Like, is he the person who is consistently, you know, coming out and representing Christ and the gospel? I, not even just because he is on the left, I would simply say no. I mean, did he, right. and I'm not saying that he should have, but did Tim Keller or any of these people say, wow, you know, Kanye West coming out with this gospel album? That's just like, so this is how you become a Christian witness in society? No. And maybe you could say that the left and the right both do this. Like maybe the right shouldn't have elevated Kanye West the way that they did. Although I think at, you know, one point we thought this is real repentance and regeneration and all of that. But 
I do think that on the right and the left, we do both have a tendency to be like, oh, this person that we like, we want them to be a Christian right. so <laughs> badly. And if they say one thing, they were like, oh, yes, 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 they know the gospel when, you know, maybe they don't. So to me, this was an example of that happening on the left side. I'm sure it happens on the right as well. So maybe just something that we all need to be careful of. Um, all right. Uh, that's all I have. Do you have any more thoughts? Any more thoughts to add to any of this? And where can people find you and read and share your story and all that good stuff? Uh, well, you know, I actually did have one more thought yeah. on the Stephen Colbert thing. And it was more that um, Tim Keller and everyone kind of in pushing back against the reaction, we're going, well, look at how Paul uh, was at Mars Hill. Look at him speaking to the Athenians. Look at, And I'm like, yeah, but Stephen Colbert does not have the track record as a Paul no. where you go, now look at everything else he's saying. Because in this instant, you can, you'd have to go, okay, don't look at anything else he's saying. Only look at that one thing. Yeah. So I, I was a little like, okay, let's not pretend like Stephen Colbert is Paul. Yeah. Um, so anyway. Not many uh, people you know, are, to be fair. Not right? many people not are. Many people but again, are. it's a part yeah, of this true. club. It's a part of this elitist club, it seems like, that that kind of gives you some points. Unfortunately, I think it gives you some points in Big Eva, too. Um, yeah. And that's a shame. And I, I'm just very thankful for your reporting. I know that this is kind of niche, but there are a lot of people out there who care about this. There's a lot of evangelicals who are interested in this. And despite what David Brooks says, people will continue to read you. People will continue to read World Opinions um, because there's a, there's a need. There's a desire for that. There's a demand for it. And we're going to keep trying to meet that demand. So thank you for doing your part in that. Where can people find you? Absolutely. Well, you can find me at the Daily Wire. I, you know, I've got some more reporting coming up. And uh, we also have a great, very different from Ali Beth's podcast, a, a daily news podcast called Morning Wire. And I do a couple segments uh, on there a week. So um, awesome. if you haven't subscribed to Morning Wire, it's quick, it's 15 minutes in yeah. and out news you need to know. So yeah. find me there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you elevating the story and talking about it because um, we need to be talking about it. Yes, for sure. Thank you so much. 